This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, December 13th, 2021 on KUAF 91.3. You can listen to all our signals with the KUAF app. Good afternoon. I'm Kyle Kellums. This Monday, books for both giving and receiving. I think that, you know, there's a couple different frameworks you can think about giving books. Books are very personal, obviously, but even if you don't you know, know the specific tastes of the person that you're giving to. Beautiful Editions is always a great way to go. Ideas from Two Friends Bookstore in Bentonville. And just ahead, how Mary Hennigan learned more about the lynching of 13 black men in Arkansas in 1904. The Arkansas Department of Health reports 218 new cases of COVID-19 in yesterday's testing. That's the lowest one-day total for the state in months. There were eight additional deaths added to Arkansas's total, and hospitalizations increased by a net of 11 patients, bringing the current number of people in Arkansas hospitals with the virus to 486. A slow cleanup continues in northeast Arkansas after tornadoes cut through the area late Friday. Emergency crews spent the weekend going through the rubble, clearing roads, and restoring power. Two people died in the state, one at a Dollar General in Leechville, the other at a nursing home in Monette. Governor Asa Hutchinson saw what was left of that nursing home on Saturday. Yesterday, he told CNN that it could have been a lot worse. We had 20 minutes of uh, warning. Uh, The siren went off, alerting the citizens that a tornado uh, was in the vicinity. And because of that, they were able to get the residents in the hallway. And so uh, preparation uh, makes a big difference. Uh, uh, the investments in those early warning systems uh, saved a lot of lives in this instance. With the expectation a federal disaster declaration will be issued, people who sustain property damage are being urged to file reports with their insurance providers. A charter school started in Fayetteville is seeking approval to open a Fort Smith campus. Talk Business and Politics reports Haas Hall is asking the Arkansas Department of Education for approval to start classes in the fourth floor of the former Golden Living Building that's now part of the Arkansas Colleges for Health Education. Since its founding in 2004 in Fayetteville, Haas Hall has open campuses in Bentonville, Springdale, and Rogers. Talk Business reports the proposed Fort Smith campus is on the December 15th agenda for the Arkansas Department of Education Charter Authorizing Panel. Former Bentonville School Superintendent Michael Poor is retiring from his current job as the superintendent of Little Rock Schools. He made the announcement Thursday night, saying he wants to spend more time with his family. Poor left Bentonville for the Little Rock job in the summer of 2016. And Arkansas's basketball teams split their decisions this weekend. The Razorback women defeated Little Rock yesterday in Fayetteville 73-39, while the 10th-ranked men lost for the first time Saturday, losing to Oklahoma 88-66. Both teams have this week off for finals and will resume their seasons with games on Saturday. This is Ozarks at Large. In the spring of 1904, white mobs, over the course of four days, lynched 13 black men in the small town of St. Charles, Arkansas, on the White River in the southeastern part of the state. It's one of the deadliest lynchings in United States history. Beyond the deaths and the names of the victims, little was recorded by newspapers at the time, and the incident, for the most part, was rarely discussed. Mary Hennigan, a graduate student in the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas, spent months learning what she could about the lynchings. Her report is published today as part of a project called Printing Hate, 
It's produced by the University of Maryland's Howard Center for Investigative Journalism. Last week, Mary came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to talk about her work. And when I was doing my reading for the project is when I stumbled across a couple of the articles about just lynching in Arkansas, and I noticed that St. Charles was mentioned. And then when I went to look for more information on St. Charles, I didn't find anything. And so that was why I picked St. Charles as my topic for my paper, because I was really intrigued that it was so deadly, 13 black men killed in three days, and there was no other information on it. And so I wanted... You know, it was a lot more challenging of a project to pick something that didn't have information on it, but it intrigues me, and I wanted to know more, and that's important history. So how do you find out more? So you have to talk to people in the community, and that started to be very difficult. Um, Because the lynching was not well known, people don't know if they're descendants because the names aren't out there. So I started with historians. I started with authors in the state. Not many people could tell me more than I found online. So that was when I started, you know, getting into Arkansas County and Southeast Arkansas and talking to the Delta Cultural Center and the Heritage Historical Societies, and I wanted to get a connection in. I looked for descendants online, and there are 13 victims to the massacre. And I was like, surely one of the 13 will have a descendant. And they did. I landed one descendant, and then that opened the door. So I ended up talking with six descendants and one other individual whose grandfather lived through the lynching. And they led this story. Their narrative was the first time that the black narrative was ever being told. The original newspaper reports didn't do interviews with African Americans. And so through my interviews with them, I was able to build something that hadn't existed before. And they provided details that had never seen the light of day, pretty much. They, you know, because their relatives lived through um, the lynching, that one individual, she was able to tell me, like, details that did not exist because the descendants of the victims, their relatives died in the massacre. And so a lot of them had the information that existed in the newspaper report that I knew as well, but they did provide some of that additional, you know, stuff that wasn't in there. How did you find that first descendant? So I used Ancestry.com. Okay. And I was wary about using it at first because, you know, as journalists, we love to use these tools, but you have to go into every tool you use with a grain of salt. You know, what if it's a different name and what if I'm not reaching out to the right person? And then I just tell this stranger unrelated all about this project and they're like, what in the world? Um, But I was very lucky to find a descendant of one of the victims and... She's actually a descendant of three of the victims because they were related. And so through her, her name is Mitzi Hafford, and she's included in the article. Um, Through her, I talked with some of the people that she told about the massacre after she started to talk with it about her family. And the story of the massacre was known in her family, but it was not told in her family. And so she would not have known about the massacre unless she had done her research as she did. Did you find, as you as you talked to other descendants of those who were murdered, did you find that they were at all reluctant to talk about it? So, uh, yeah. Um, you know, silence in that community is pretty common because you don't want to spread that fear. You don't want to be, you know, some, an elder in your family and telling the next generation about these horrifying things. You want 
your children or your grandchildren to grow up in a nice environment. So that was something that I found in the articles. And also, people who still had relatives there were a little wary to share this information because they were worried about their safety. Still? Yes. And so as a journalist, you know, one of our goals is to minimize harm. And so that was always something I had to keep in mind when I'm sharing these very sensitive topic. You know, their talks with me were... We talked for a very long time, and they shared some really deep information with me. And I didn't want to exploit their stories. I wasn't doing this for anything but to get the story out there. And so I really had to keep in mind how to keep them and their relatives safe. Did you think also about the fact that, I mean, you're a fair-complected right, human I'm, being? I mean, Yes, that was, you know, something that was in my mind the whole time. I'm a young white woman. Um, I'm still getting into my journalism career. And so I went into every interview, you know, even if someone outside of my age demographic, I go into the interview just thinking different. And so in this case, you know, um, no one looked like me. And I just went into every interview objective, educated, and I wanted to make them feel comfortable. You know, people love to talk about uncomfortable. They use that word all the time when you have to talk about race. But for me, you know, This story was so important, and the history wasn't out there. I was just having a conversation with these people, and it was an important conversation. Face-to-face conversations? Um, So I met with one source in St. Charles, um, whose grandfather lived through the massacre. Her name was Janice Streeter, and she took me around the town, showed me, you know, what may have been there at the time. A lot of those things no longer exist. New highways kind of changed the town as well. Um, that was the only person I got to meet face-to-face, and also um, the Delta Cultural Center Museum curator I met with as well. And that's in Helena, West Helena? Yes. Yeah. What's St. Charles like? It's on the White River. It's in southeast Arkansas. Yeah, so St. Charles is a pretty small town, about two or 300 population. When we were out there, there wasn't a lot of noise, no people walking around, anything like that. Not a stoplight in town, no gas station. Um, It's on the White River, but not much goes on at the White River that I saw. (laughs) There is an open water access where the ferry would have passed through in 1904. Um, But other than that, you know, there's not much. There's rural farmland. uh, Cotton, rice, soybeans are popular there. Duck hunting is popular as well, but that's about it. Do you think working on this for months and talking to this these descendants of people who were murdered, who were lynched uh, by these white mobs in early 20th century. Has it had an effect or changed you at all? Yeah, so this was a really taxing story for me to write. Being involved in anything sensitive, you know, regardless of this topic specific, if I had taken on a different hard story, it also would have affected me. But with this one, I was thinking about death and killing every day for four months. And so it was hard for me. Some nights I couldn't sleep. I had nightmares of lynching of people I didn't know. And so going into the story objectively, you know, is very important to me. But it was very taxing on my mental health. And that's something that I just kept in mind. And some days I just had to take breaks. Sometimes I couldn't read five articles about lynching. I just had to, you know, take a breather. And that's where some of those conversations with the sources helped. Uh, They were telling me really intense stuff. But, you know, hearing it from them just brought a different viewpoint to me because I wasn't, in my reading, you know, I wasn't being able to create any other 
thoughts in my head, but in a conversation, it felt different. And so somehow that helps me. What's the challenge for you when you're trying to piece together what you can from an incident that happened hundred and almost 120 years ago? Yeah, so... You know, a lot of erasure happened with this story. There was a lot of stuff that wasn't included in the newspaper articles in the first place. State historians told me that they think that the press just didn't bother to get the information. They just didn't think it was... So lynching, unfortunately, at the time was just really common. And so it was everyday news. So some of the details, you know... We can't really speak for the journalists at the time, but we can probably say that, you know, it was just stuff that everyone saw all the time. So some of the headlines were so vague, just two more slain, and readers knew immediately what was happening. So piecing together this story for which almost nothing exists was difficult. That's where the interviews came you know, to be the most important factor for the story, I was able to also find census documents. And so I could track the decline of African-Americans in Arkansas County. And, you know, I mentioned the erasure that happened with the newspaper articles, with the population decrease, and then also with significant black gathering places. So they had a church in 1904 called the Hopewell Church, no longer exists today. The cemetery that was behind it is still there with many grave sites of victims, um, descendants of the victims. But, you know, those it's not well maintained. The headstones are torn apart and then pieced together with others that aren't their own. Um, a significant high school that was built in the 1940s no longer exists. Um, so just a lot of stuff that would have helped years and years ago no longer exists today. Where can we read your article? You can find my article at Capital News Service for the Howard Center for Investigative Journalism. It's part of a project called Printing Hate, where we looked at newspaper coverage of lynchings across the nation. Mary, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Mary Hannigan is a graduate student in the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas, and her work about the St. Charles lynchings of 1904 is part of the project Printing Hate. It's from the University of Maryland's Howard Center for Investigative Journalism. You can read more at lynching.cnsmaryland.org. We also have a link to her story at ozarksatlarge.com. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Aurora, Arkansas statewide organ and tissue recovery and registry agency, is a lifeline for the 100,000-plus Americans and 300-plus Arkansans waiting for an organ transplant. The simple act of registering to become an organ and tissue donor is available at the DMV, online at aurora.org, and on smartphone health apps, A-R-O-R-A dot org, for more information. A heartfelt thank you from all of the staff at Ozarks at Large for your support last week during the season of Giving Fundraiser. Even after the on-air fundraiser ended Friday night at 7, we received contributions to support KUAF.com. Our membership director, Sherry Ottaviano, is totaling up all the support. We'll have the final total of contributions from the week soon. Again, thank you very much. The Lunch Hour, a new monthly concert series taking place in the KUAF lobby that will feature local artists and local restaurants, begins this week, Friday. Music will be provided by Bang Lunch, provided by Woodstone Pizza. Doors open at noon Friday. The music will start about 20 minutes after that. It's our lobby, so space is limited. Registration required. Mask wearing will be required as well. For more information and to register, 
Just look for the appropriate links at KUAF.com. The Lunch Hour, beginning this week, is sponsored by George's Majestic Lounge Happy Hour, a Fayetteville tradition for over 40 years, happening each Friday from 6 to 9 p.m. at 519 West Dixon. For over a decade, KUAF's Giving Tree program has benefited dozens of nonprofits that need our help in all of our communities. But possibly more important than helping bring in donations to these groups, the Giving Tree has raised awareness of so many issues in our area that need our attention. In this season of giving, we're helping out two groups, Peace at Home Family Shelter and the Magdalene Serenity House. We'll be hearing from both all throughout December and ways that you can help out. You can also go to our website, KUAF.com, click on the Giving Tree, and learn how you can directly benefit these groups. The Giving Tree and KUAF Public Radio, local matters. This is Ozarks at Large. This holiday season, we're here to help you out with a couple book gift guides for the adults and children in your life. Today, we hear from Rachel Stuckey Slayton, one of the owners of Two Friends Books in Bentonville. She recently sat down with Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore to talk about not just books to give this holiday season, but some holiday-adjacent books that are perfect to get yourself to read as well. We're entering the holiday season here, which is a great opportunity to give gifts. What better way to give gifts than by doing it with local shops? And Rachel, you have this idea of how to decide what kind of gift you would give compared to what kind of gift perhaps you would like to receive. <laughs> right. Can you, tell, can you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, your ideas for giving gifts this season? Yes. Well, I was kind of thinking about, you know, books in the holidays more generally, and I feel like there are books that you want to read during the holidays. So you might buy them December 2nd or, you know, December 17th or whatever, and maybe they're set during the holidays or there's, you know, themes that feel relevant to the holiday season, but they're not necessarily books that feel especially interesting on December 26th. Right, right. <laughs> so it seemed like there is, I think we talked about like there's, you know, these circles and then there's a Venn diagram and it's not, the, the Venn diagram isn't terribly overlapping all right, the time. <laughs> right, right. Yes. So perhaps let's start with what kind of books would we like to give as sure. gifts. I think uh, this is a time where we're not really sure what's happening with the supply chain. We want to make sure that we can get a book. We want to make sure that it'll be meaningful to the people we give it to. Let's hear some of those suggestions first. Sure. Well, I think that, you know, there's a couple different frameworks you can think about giving books. Books are very personal, obviously, but even if you don't you know, know the specific tastes of the person that you're giving to, Beautiful Editions is always a great way to go. So, you know, like classic novels that are put out in gorgeous editions, like I know that Penguin has a classic series that's cloth bound, and there's these little talismans on the front that are relevant to the novel. And so, for example, Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, there is these little like opera glasses, and the edition is just beautiful. The translation is great. So thinking about like beautiful editions of classic books is always a good way to go. And then um, signed copies, mm. like that's something really special. And that's something special that independent bookstores can can provide to people during the holiday season. For example, at our shop right now, we have um, Ai Weiwei, the artist. He had a memoir come out this year and they're signed copies. And I know personally, I will never be able to afford <laughs> like... <laughs> 
anything else signed by Ai Weiwei. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's amazing to have this object signed by this very important artist. And yeah, so th- that's a couple of different frameworks to start thinking about things. But I wanted to come to with some specific suggestions yes. for, for gifts. So I have a couple ideas for children, and then we can talk about books for adults too. Great, great. So let's dive into gift ideas mm-hmm. for children. Okay. All right. So there's a series called The Questionnaires by Andrea Beattie. And I think there's five books in this series. It's a picture book series. And they all have these very like cute, catchy titles. The most recent one is Aaron Slater Illustrator. So it's always like the kid's name and then some like career. But really the books aren't so much about the career as they are about resilience. My son's favorite one is called Rosie Revere Engineer, and it's about this little girl who is afraid of failure. That's ultimately what she's, you know, she, it's, it's this journey of this little girl who wants to make things, but she's afraid of making a mistake and looking stupid. Mm, aren't anyway, we all? Aren't we all? Totally. Um, so this series is just great. It's great for adults. Like, I love reading it, and I love reading it out loud. And not all children's books are super fun to read out loud. This is a great one. It's got fantastic cadence. The illustrations are fabulous, and the message is on point. So that's anything in that in that series I think would be great. And then there's another book that I'd like to recommend called All the Ways to Be Smart by Davina Bell. And she's an Australian author, and this book is... You know, the past two years, I think, have been hard for children who are in school, and school can be a little bit stressful, and this is a great book for any kid or adult who's ever felt like school didn't come easy to them. And so it's a book that's celebrating all the ways to be smart, creativity, storytelling, emotional intelligence, yes, you know, like reading and arithmetic and all of those things, like being good with numbers, but anyway, it's just this very, like, life-giving and joyful children's book about being special and unique. And isn't that what all of our beautiful children are? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. And then finally for kids, I wanted to recommend the Mysterious Benedict Society. Uh, Trenton Lee Stewart is an author from Arkansas. And this book was recently made into a Disney Plus series. And we have signed copies in our shop of the entire series. So going back to what we were talking about earlier, I feel like Something like this would be fantastic for middle grade, so like kids in fourth grade up. And I know lots of adults also love these books. So we we've got our we've got our list made for the kiddos. Yes. Um, what about those who aren't kiddos? Okay. All right. Here we go. <laughs> so. Oh man, this is Yeah, beautiful. isn't this gorgeous? So, um, University of Arkansas Press, first of all, puts out wonderful books. And this is called Arkansas Made. There's two volumes in this. This is a big coffee table book. You can't see this, but it's gorgeous. We'll drop it on the table later so yeah. people can see how <laughs> can hear how hefty this book is. Oh, it's a tome. It's all about 
this a survey of decorative and fine arts in Arkansas, and it goes. The first volume is up through the 1950s, and then the second volume is through today. The photography is beautiful. You you look through this, and you just feel like, wow, I live in a very special place with some very talented people. Yeah. And it would look great on your coffee table, and it's also super interesting to read, and especially if you're wanting to feel kind of rooted in Arkansas. This is a great gift. Well, and it's great for someone like me, too, who is not an Arkansas native and is hoping to learn more about the state, is hoping to feel some like I belong here. Yes. And so this is this is a great this would be a great gift to me, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> this book, it, it looks gorgeous. It's got a lot of pride in it. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, it's produced by the University of Arkansas Press. It's local. This is great. I love this idea. Yes. Okay. So another idea that is, again, rooted here in Arkansas is it's called Escape Velocity by Charles. It's a Charles Portis miscellany is what it's called. So Charles Portis, for those of you who don't know, is an author from Arkansas who wrote the classic Western novel True Grit. So he died in 2020. And this is a collection of nonfiction essays, dramas, short stories, It's a miscellany. So again, if you are a Charles Portis fan or you're just interested in reading some fiction and nonfiction that is from a fabulous Arkansas author, this would be a good choice. And then I've got two more adults. Yes. Okay. All right. Here we go. So the next book that I'd like to recommend here is called The Book of Delights by Ross Gay. So Ross Gay is a poet, and he's actually come to Fayetteville, I know, to run some workshops with Open Mouth Literary. And it's a small collection of everyday joys recorded during a year in the life of the poet. It is charming, it's poetic, it's insightful, and each little chapter can kind of be used as like almost like a daily calendar. Mm. (laughs) And I know that Monica, the other friend of two friends, has given this book as gifts in the past, and it's gone over great. Yes. So (laughs) there's that. And then finally, talking about that Venn diagram, this is something that definitely fits in the middle of something that I would both (laughs) want to read during the holidays and be given. Sam, if you're listening, just just hear this, okay? Tune in right now. (laughs) So Brene Brown is a scholar and kind of like a public thinker about shame. her, Her work often is about like shame and vulnerability. And she has a couple best-selling books that have come out before this. This book just came out on November 30th. So this is a new release. It's called Atlas of the Heart, Mapping Meaningful Connection and the Language of Human Experience. It is a gorgeous like object. Mm-hmm. It would make a fantastic gift. It has sort of like a gift book vibe to it, like with pretty photography in it and like some interesting typography, but it's by Brene Brown. So we know it's going to be full of substance and just fabulous. Okay. So now we have this category that I really resonate with because it's normally during this time of year that stuff slows down enough that I actually can willingly choose to read things. So let's talk a little bit about books that fall into this category of uh, books I want to read during Mm -hmm. this time. Okay. All right. So we'll stay in the adult world since we're we're in that bridge, the the, the Venn diagram bridge with Brene Brown. Yes. (laughs) 
one book that I would say could be good is Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason. It's funny and sad, just kind of like the title would suggest and, you know, full of self-sabotage. It's set during, in London during like some kind of crazy Christmas family scene. So it's thematically relevant, but it's also full of romance and it kind of like turns the tropes of the romance genre on its head and is just generally a super fun but also meaty book to read during the holidays, set during the holidays. So this kind of feels like a category of like, you're excited all year to finally get to Christmas season so you can watch those Christmas movies. Exactly. But for books. Yes. Yes. Okay. So that is 100% a thing in books. Great. But I will say this next book that I'm recommending is not exactly that, but I was thinking about how... During the holidays, you know, we're with our families. We've, you know, been in this pandemic where we're kind of isolated often and being cloistered with other people in close quarters can be both joyful and very stressful. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this next book that is kind of like exploring that. Mm. Um, so if you're like not ready to read a pandemic novel, maybe this isn't for you. <laughs> <laughs> so Gary Steingart is the author. The book is called Our Country Friends. He wrote a super sad true love story, which was a novel that came out a few years ago and was hugely popular. He was a writer for the HBO series Succession, mm. if that means anything to you. Yes. <laughs> Our Country Friends is set during the pandemic, like in 2020, at a house up in upstate New York, a group of eight people who all kind of come together to self-quarantine in in this location. So it's full of satire. It's kind of cutting. It's funny. It is sort of about like the bonds of friendship and, you know, when we put stress on those bonds, but also like the the life-giving nature of relationships with other people. And anyway, this is on my personal TBR list, which for the uninitiated means to be read list. <laughs> and yeah, I'm very much looking forward to this. I love an author that can make me laugh and cry in the same book. So mm. Gary Steingart is your guy for that. Yes, that's fantastic. And then there are a few books for children during the holidays. I have kids myself and I have little kids and I always love to revisit the classics during the holidays. So How the Grinch Stole Christmas. I mean, come on. Like I was saying earlier, editions, like finding a cool edition, the the current edition for How the Grinch Stole Christmas is shiny and Mm -hmm. fun and little kids love it. Um, It's very vibrant. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. And like, who doesn't love a a character who starts out bad but then finds the good in himself and can change. I've recently grown to really admire the Grinch Truly. and admire his growth and and realizing that it's okay to be wrong and it's okay to let people surprise you. And I feel like that's one of the f- greatest takeaways from what can be seen as like a an infantile or silly story. It's it's really a story about growth. Oh, 100%. I love it. I do too. I am with you there. And then the other book that I'd like to recommend, which is more like the, the holidays are a part of it, but it's not like the primary story here, is Richard Scarry's Busy, Busy Winter. This is a board book. And for Richard Scarry is a children's uh, book author and illustrator, you know, sort of like classic, you know, mm-hmm. he's, he, he was around for a long time. And so this is great for if you have little kids who are still learning 
new words and vocabulary. It's fantastic for that. It's all about, you know, the things that we do in the winter. And obviously the holidays play a huge part in that. So we see winter scenes. We see holiday dinner scenes. We see a Christmas scene. And then in every page, you know, there's like everything is labeled and it kind of opens up the conversation with your little ones about kind of like making up the story and also like building their vocabulary. Mm. Yeah. So Richard Scarry's Busy, Busy Winter is my other suggestion leading into the holidays with your little ones. Rachel, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Where can folks find you in Bentonville? It is my pleasure. You can find us at 234 Southwest 7th Street in downtown Bentonville. And um, we're all over social media. So at Two Friends Books on Instagram and TikTok and then Two Friends Books on Facebook, too. And all of these books will be available at your shop. Yes, all of these books are at our store. Awesome. Rachel, thank you so much for spending some time with us and happy holidays. Thank you. Happy holidays to you. It was a pleasure being here. You can find all of those recommendations from two friends on our website at ozarksatlarge.com. And tomorrow we'll hear from Pearl's Books in Fayetteville with some more gift ideas, including some excellent coffee table reads. For many investors, cryptocurrency is the future. Several cities, including Miami, are fighting for the title of crypto capital. It's the gateway to Latin America. It's on the East Coast time zone. And more importantly, it's probably the most excited city in the world about crypto right now. How Miami is winning that battle against New York City this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. All Things Considered, today from 3 to 6 on KUAF. And you can always listen to us anytime, anywhere, by using the KUAF app. This is Ozarks at Large. On Friday, the United States Supreme Court ruled to allow a strict abortion ban in Texas to remain in place, but the court also ruled that abortion providers can file suit to stop the law. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. After hearing oral arguments November 1st, the U.S. Supreme Court last week decided to leave in place a controversial Texas abortion ban known as the Texas Heartbeat Act. The law prohibits abortions after six weeks, when a fetal heart cell pulse can first be medically detected. The ban makes no exception for rape or incest, and criminal enforcement can be brought by any U.S. citizen against any Texas provider who performs or assists with abortions beyond six weeks. The anti-abortion group Texas Right to Life issued a statement after the court ruling saying the decision will save lives. The Supreme Court, however, also decided that abortion providers may proceed with legal challenges to block the ban as unconstitutional. Holly Dixon is executive director of the Arkansas chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union. It's great that, you know, the the challenges can proceed and indeed the challenges will proceed. However, The court could have and should have enjoined the Texas law um, because there continues to be chaos uh, in Texas for over 100 days now uh, with people being denied fundamental rights and access to care. Abortion providers in Texas reportedly are serving fewer than 30 percent of patients, advocates say, because of the ban except to save the life of a pregnant woman with no exceptions for rape, incest, or fetal anomalies. Abortion was also banned in Arkansas last March by the majority Republican legislature, signed into law by Governor Asa Hutchinson. Providers who violate the law can be fined up to $100,000 and imprisoned for 10 years. 
The Arkansas ban, however, was blocked this summer after Dixon, along with ACLU National and Planned Parenthood, filed suit in U.S. District Court claiming it causes disproportionate harm, particularly to disadvantaged Arkansas women. We have one surgical abortion facility in the state of Arkansas. It's located in Little Rock, and Texas patients have been uh, coming to that clinic for months. The conservative majority Supreme Court this spring is expected to issue a ruling after deliberations earlier this month on abortion access in Mississippi. Pro-life advocates are hoping that a decision by the court will finally overturn Roe v. Wade that first legalized in 1973 the rights of American women to safely secure surgical abortions. But in a dissenting opinion on the Texas Heartbeat Act decision, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote that keeping the Texas ban in place is, quote, madness, writing that the U.S. Constitution guarantees the right of pregnant women to control their own bodies. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. The University of Arkansas Fort Smith's fall commencement speaker will be State Senator Matthew Pitch. The assignment means double duty. There are two commencement ceremonies Saturday, one at 10 in the morning, one at 2 in the afternoon. The senator is scheduled to speak at both. He's been in the Arkansas legislature as a member of the House first, then the Senate, since 2015. He's also quite familiar with UAFS, serving as instructor, assistant professor, department chair, interim dean, and dean of the College of Applied Science and Technology. Both graduation events will be at the Stubblefield Center on campus. More than 450 students will be given their diplomas. Early voting for a special legislative election is over after today. Voters in state Senate District 7 can access polls tomorrow at five locations in Springdale, Elkins, and Sonora. But there will be no voting at the county courthouse tomorrow, Election Day. Two Democrats and four Republicans are seeking the seat left empty after former state Senator Lance Eads resigned the position for a job in the private sector. If there is a need for a GOP primary, that will be held next month. The election day between the two eventual party nominees... February 8th. As of Friday evening, fewer than 300 people had cast early ballots, 124 for a preferred Democrat and 158 in the GOP primary. Polls tomorrow open 7.30 to 7.30. And next month's 2022 Walmart UCI Cyclocross World Championships are in Fayetteville, and Arvest Bank is signing on as an official sponsor. The sponsorship announcement comes from Experience Fayetteville as the city prepares to be just the second in the United States to host the World Championships in its 72-year history. About 300 cyclists representing 25 different countries will be in the competition scheduled for January 28th through the 30th. KUAF is supported by Little Guys Movers, a community-oriented company rooted in creating better lives for customers and employees alike, providing jobs and serving customers for over 28 years. More than just a moving company, littleguys.com for information. This is Ozarks at Large. With me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio is Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. Happy holidays. Hey, same to you, Kyle. Uh, we're going to go back to a different December, not December 2021 with archives from the Pryor Center, but December... Of 75. Okay. Well, so we did we jump ahead seven years. Yeah, two weeks... Or last week, we did December 1968. What do we hear from 1975? Well, uh, you know, our U.S. senators were uh, John McClellan and Dale Bumpers. Right. Because he had defeated Fulbright. Um, the governor was David Pryor. And uh, you want to know the number one song? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's the way, uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it. Casey like, and the Sunshine Band? That's right. Okay. Yeah, you nailed it. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, David Pryor was governor, so mm-hmm. why don't we hear for him? And uh, he was asked during a, one of the regular you know, news conferences that they have in the governor's conference room. Uh, he was called the news conference about another topic, but he, he, of course, was asked about whether he was going to run for a second term. I'm not going to talk politics or what I'm going to do until after the legislative session. I've got my hands full with the legislature coming to town. And there will be an announcement of some form in due time. Well, sir, is everybody in the state going to know you're running for second term but uh, with the press conference? I've not told anybody yet that I'm running for a second term. Governor, are you considering any political options besides getting out of politics and running for a second term? Oh, uh, not at this point. He sounds just a little bit annoyed in this. He did, didn't he? <laughs> I haven't told anybody. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. You mentioned John McClellan was yes. one of the senators, and we're yes. going to hear from him now. Right. And he talks about the expansion of communism around the world. The question is, are we willing to retreat from our position of being concerned about communist expansion throughout the world? If we are willing to retreat from that position, then we ought not send anything to Angola or anywhere else. But I am concerned, and many are concerned, about what are, what are, what's the purpose, what's motivating the Russians to take such a firm stand and to send so much equipment over there. It struck me, Randy, as we're listening to this, you know, there's, there, there is Senator John McClellan in December 1975 talking about Russian expansion, and right now concern around the world about Russian expansion in Ukraine. That's right. That's right. So, and there was a lot of talk about inflation. Well, yes, there was and in there, And there is again. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. I just assume that every state park is roughly 100 to 300 years old. I just assume they've always been there. Right. But here we go to Queen Wilhelmina State Park. Right. And this was a, a dedication of uh, the lodge. Thing. Right. You know, the big lodge. That's uh, up on Rich Mountain, mm-hmm. and um, it was named after Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands, who died, I believe, in '64. But right. her reign was lengthy uh, over decades. Yes, yeah. But um, what you're about to hear is a report from Steve Barnes. So you'll hear Steve Barnes first, mm-hmm. and then uh, statements from the uh, governor, then David Pryor. And I, I don't have his name, but it was a, uh, a government official, Dutch government official. You'll be able to tell which one he is. I believe so. Okay. The 20th century had yet to begin when a group of businessmen in the Netherlands invested in the first inn atop this mountain, built to accommodate workers and travelers on the Gulf States, Pittsburgh, and Kansas City Railway. They hoped in vain that Dutch royalty would visit here. They never did. But all three ends bore the name Queen Wilhelmina. We learn once again of Emerson's lesson, and I quote, that nothing is rich but the inexhaustible wealth of nature. We appreciate all over again what these mountains mean, what they can perform in the way of restoration, in the way of relief, and in replenishment 
of our energies. I should like to also like to dedicate this moment to the continuing cooperation and the excellent relationship between our two countries, the continuing cooperation in all fields, environmental as well as other, and the, the, uh, a cooperation of which this beautiful, beautiful building standing so visibly on a mountaintop is another um, uh, um, is another symbol. From December 1975 in Mina at the dedication of the lodge at Queen Wilhelmina State Park. That's right. Yeah. Um, football, always big in Arkansas. Always in December, Razorback yeah. football. And this year, uh, Texas A&M played in Little Rock at War Memorial Stadium, and it was selected as one of the ABC Sports uh, highlighted games. And so they had the big crews come in and set up at the stadium and had their remote truck, and the technical director just happened to be from Arkansas. Uh, his name was... John Allen. Yes, from Prescott. Yeah. We do so many things that... Uh you wouldn't ordinarily do, you know, and uh, such as the, the camera work and the audio people, and they, they all have to be experts in their own field, and, and uh, you can't uh, teach that in school. You just have to take them out, and uh, over the years, they all become uh, precision experts in it. What's a typical week for this crew? Well, we all uh, arrive at uh, the football game remote on uh, Wednesday, usually. And uh, we start set up uh, Thursday morning, about 8 o'clock. And it takes us from practically all day to get the equipment physically in place. And then Friday, we do all the fine-tuning and adjusting the cameras and checking out all the audio and PL, private line circuits, telephones to New York or Chicago and uh, all the other technical facilities, slow-mos, videotapes. And uh, then we have a look-see with the director and the producer looking at the cameras and uh, checking the lenses and the shots to make sure that everything is the way they like to have it to cover the game. And then we uh, come out Saturday morning and we have a, a walkthrough rehearsal with uh, the directors and the producer again and the uh, whole crew with the announcers and we show them the uh, videotape and film clips and things that we're going to use at, at the top of the game or at halftime. And then we take a half an hour break and we do the game. Then, we, then after the game, the crew takes a break, has dinner. We wrap up all the cameras and equipment, pack it away, and we all split and leave and going home to New York or Los Angeles Saturday night. And uh, the following Wednesday, we all leave and go to the next remote and do it all over again. I imagine the operations, I mean, obviously it's digital technology and satellites and everything, but it sounds like it might be kind of the same thing. This crew comes in to a place like... Fayetteville, Arkansas, That's or right. College Station, Texas, sets up, does the game, Run goes home. cables. And, yeah. And I remember, uh, at least on one occasion, instead of having to wind up all the cables that they had strung out, they just cut them. They just and cut them and, and left them? And left them. Yeah. Are you kidding me? And I don't know if that's standard practice or was standard practice but at the time. But it seems expensive. Well, that or... The time involved okay. with with retrieving, sure. them, you know, who knows? Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. So these next couple of interviews you hear are mm -hmm. from people who would be 
heavily involved in politics in the future. Right. Not quite at, in 75. Right. They were right. influential in Arkansas, but not yes. in the political sphere. Exactly. Right. And his first one uh, was the chairman of the Arkansas Industrial Development Commission, a man by the name of Frank White, who in five years, you know, would defeat uh, Bill Clinton. But here he is uh, talking about the foreign trade market. There's tremendous potential there. There's tremendous potential in the housing area there. I think the biggest problem we have faced and continue to face in the state of Arkansas is our people do not know how to make the contact. They don't know how to handle the business. And I think it is a very positive program for us through the Arkansas Industrial Development Commission to try and establish contacts and develop an education program to where the farmers and the manufacturers in the state can in fact find their market and we can give them guidance as to how to deal in the foreign trade market. That is future governor, but then in 75, the chair of the AIDC. And who are we hearing from next? Well, this is another uh, Clinton opponent. Yeah. 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 He was uh, the president of Arkansas Louisiana Gas Company at the time. And he is one Sheffield Nelson. And he's talking about rate increases. Bob, we did file a, an application for an increase in the price of gas to industrials today. Uh, the reasons that we made the filing are as follows. Number one, they're paying only 65 cents per thousand cubic feet, which is much less than alternate fuels would cost, and which is much less than our residential payers pay today. Secondly, we have, uh, have increased our expiration program from $11 million back two years ago to $22 million last year and to $33 million this year. It takes a tremendous amount of funding to uh, handle a program uh, this optimistic in, in nature, and uh, we just feel that we have to get the money from those uh, who should be paying more, the industrial customer. How, many, how much money will be raised by the cost increase? If the Public Service Commission grants the increase from 65 to $0.80 cents in the Fairfield price of natural gas, uh, we will receive approximately $13.8 million uh, over a year's period of time. Interesting to note, Sheffield Nelson never did become governor of Arkansas. Exactly. And then talking about rate increases is probably never a great way to start. <laughs> Whether they're needed or not, it's a tough hurdle to get over. Yeah, right? that's right. I that's mean, right. All right. Nothing against the people who lead commissions, who we send to Washington or the state capitol, but my favorite cuts are often the like the ones we're about to hear. Like last week, we heard from the teller who had to experience the, the bank robbery. That's right. And Just an everyday person. Exactly. And I love this next guy. Well, it's, you know, um, Christmas time. Mm -hmm. So KTV is going to do a feature on a candy maker. And I don't know who this woman is. But they went to the little candy factory in Little Rock and talked to her. And according to this, she's been making candy for uh, more than half a century. Absolutely wonderful. It's just wonderful so far. We have had a better business than we expected at the early part of the season. But we are just packing. We're packing special orders, and we're packing all ones, twos, threes, fives. And anything that they ask for, we pack it. What seems to be the most popular type of candy this year? The uh, sorted, uh, the super. That is the light and the dark chocolates together. That seems to be the best seller this year. 
How does this Christmas compare with some of the 58 Christmases past? Oh, this Christmas is wonderful, but it can't compare with some that we've had because we have had some lovely, lovely Christmases. Because when Mr. Snyder was in business his own self, we really made the candy and we really sold the candy. All right, that was a candy maker. And yet the reporter <laughs> says, how does this Christmas compare to the previous 58? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I loved also uh, the combo packer. I can't remember exactly yeah, how it was yeah, described. Yeah, the darks and the light chocolates. Right, that's and, this year's big seller. Yeah, combo yeah. pack, I think. Combo pack, right. Yeah. Is there still a candy factory in Little Rock? I don't know. Um, I know that there's a, a peanut brittle factory in Arkadelphia. Well. And they make great cashew brittle. I, I, I just have this image of teeth breaking when I think well, of yeah. brittle. <laughs> <laughs> so 1975, candy, football, concern about utility prices, inflation. Doesn't sound that much different than December 2021. No, it really doesn't. Well, we're going to take a couple weeks off break on Ozarks at Large, and you will be back with us, gosh, I think it's Monday the 10th. Of January. Right. Okay. So get some rest. Yeah. And, you know. Find some more stuff. Find some more stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Randy Dixon is with the Dave and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Randy, happy holidays. Yes, and a happy new year. KUAF is supported by Dr. Kathleen Wong, providing in-office infusion therapy for treatment of depression and anxiety disorders. Following NIMH protocol, infusion therapy is an effective alternative when other treatments fail. Dr. Kathleen Wong, WebMD, for more information. Tomorrow on our show, Fayville musician Chris Maston, who performs as John Charles, recently released his first album of original music, an effort that took 10 years to complete. So I only had one microphone initially, so I'd have to record everything with just one mic at the houses and or apartments I lived in, and then try to EQ it and make it sound better later. And then, you know... Finish writing the songs, too, which uh, is easier said than done. A conversation with him, and we'll hear a bit from that album tomorrow on Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 on KUAF. You can always hear the most recent edition of our show by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Strickler. Today's show was produced by Timothy Dennis. Contributors included Matthew Moore, Jacqueline Froelich, and Randy Dixon, with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Our theme written and performed by Daryl Sean. Thanks once again for contributing last week during KUAF's Season of Giving fundraiser. We do appreciate it. If you'd like to contribute at any time, you can always go to supportkuaf.com. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellums. Please get some rest. We'll talk again tomorrow.